I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you. I will wait for you until my soul is satisfied. Over the last couple of months, Ruthie and I have seen outside um, of our house window, right on the other side of that window, is a bush with a robin's nest in it. And we have seen the eggs hatch, and we've seen the little chicks being fed, not just by their mother, but what was a surprise to me is also their father. We saw one robin coming, then would go, another bigger robin would come. And so we were like, wow, I didn't know the father actually fed the chicks too. And so we looked it up and come to find out that not only do both mother and father feed their babies, but they do so up to 150 times a day. Uh, virtually every 10 minutes they are coming and going from the nest to feed those babies in order to satisfy their hunger. And you think of that psalm that says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And I think, man, what a great illustration. What a great lesson from nature itself that we should be constantly hungering and thirsting for the word of God until our soul is satisfied. That is how we grow and become healthy and become truly satisfied as believers. Because the fact is, often when our circumstances are unsettled, then our souls become unsettled, don't they? Uh, It's easy for us to be ruled by anxiety, um, fear, uh, frustration, perhaps even anger. In some cases, a sense of dread as certain questions begin to haunt us in our circumstances. Like, is God really in control? I know that's what his word says, but is he really in control? I know that God is love, but does God really care for me? Care for me and my loved ones? Is God really as good as he says he is? And does God know what he is doing? These are the questions that sometimes plague our hearts, even though we know better with our minds. And it's only as we return to God's word repeatedly can we find rest in our souls. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you. I will wait for you until my soul is satisfied. As we return to God's word, he restores our souls. In 2 Samuel 17, our passage for today, we see God at work. We see his almighty power doing his thing, overriding what would have otherwise been the natural course of events. In the previous chapter, David's son Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, having conspired against his father in order to usurp the throne, and Absalom asks the counselor Ahithophel, what shall we do? What shall we do? It occurred to me that God never asked anybody else that question. Isaiah wrote, Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or to teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? And the answer is a resounding no. We sang about that at the start of our service. Behold our God seated on the throne. Isaiah goes on to 
extol God's infinite wisdom and power, saying, The nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket to God. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He's not talking about God's concern, his love for the nations. He's talking about God's power over the nations. The nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket of God. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as if it were a grain of sand. Well, keep that in mind as we come to 2 Samuel 17, because by the time we come to this chapter in our study of the life of David, Absalom, David's son, has stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. He has duped them by his political ploys. He has declared himself to be king in Hebron and has now advanced toward Jerusalem. David, upon getting word of this, flees from the city with his household and the few men who stick with him. So from the looks of things, by the time we come to chapter 17, David's days are numbered. David is about to lose his kingdom and even his very life. But behind these dreadful circumstances is the sovereign hand of God. He is the one in control. God is the one calling the shots. And his purpose is the one that prevails. God is calling the shots, not Absalom, not Ahithophel, not even David or anyone else. Today in 2 Samuel 17, we will see that no human wisdom, insight, or plan can succeed against the Lord. No human wisdom, insight, or plan can succeed against the Lord. I want you to watch how this principle plays out in 2 Samuel 17. We're not going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to go through most of the chapter. And then I want to spend the second half of our time together telling you another story to encourage you. Let's consider first Ahithophel's counsel. 2 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace." And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And for good reason. Ahithophel has sized up David's predicament perfectly and has drawn up a plan accordingly. It was a five-point plan that made perfect sense. Let me review it quickly. Number one, Ahithophel would lead this military expedition. This is indicated by all the I wills in the first four verses. We don't know that perhaps he doubted Absalom's ability to lead a military campaign. This is the one that keeps asking him, what shall we do? So maybe Ithophel's thinking, you know what, I'll just take care of this. Maybe he doesn't trust Absalom's ability to lead, or maybe he is simply trying to keep Absalom safe away from the skirmish so that he is safe back in Jerusalem when everybody comes back to him. Uh, but whatever the case, Ahithophel is clearly confident in his own leadership capabilities. He will lead the expedition. Number two, Ahithophel would select a contingent of soldiers to represent all Israel. 12,000 men from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, perhaps 1,000 men from each tribe. And that would symbolize the, that all of the nation is involved in the overthrow of David. And it would also lay the groundwork for the nation's reunification under Absalom, their new king. 
The third point of this five-point plan, Ahithophel and his men would go after David right away, tonight. This is the night of the same day that David found out about the conspiracy. Things are moving very fast. Absalom has declared himself king. David flees Jerusalem. He's made it about 20 miles east of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives to the Jordan. And Absalom has moved into the city. When Absalom moves into the city, uh, Hushai has already returned from David, uh, trying to throw off Absalom, trying to defeat the council of Ahithophel. But Absalom asks Ahithophel, what should I do now? And Absalom says, sleep with your father's concubines. So Absalom pitches a tent on the, the, the palace roof, and there he has sex with his father David's concubines. And it's that very night that Ahithophel plans to attack David while he is tired, while he is weary, while he is discouraged from the journey, while it's late at night. And the plan is that this surprise attack uh, during this moment of weariness and be under the cover of darkness will throw David and everybody with him into a panic. They will run away from David, leaving him fully exposed to the attack, which leads to point four, David would be the only target. This would minimize the collateral damage. Their goal is not to kill the people of Israel. Their goal is to kill the king so Absalom can become the new king. And all and this is point five, all the people will be brought back to Absalom as a bride comes home to her husband. Ahithophel's plan was careful, calculated, and concise. And the advice seemed right to Absalom and all his men. That's what we read in verse 4. All right then, let's go. Time's of the essence. We're moving out tonight. Let's launch the surprise attack. That should have been what they did from a tactical standpoint. It should have been the end of the matter as far as the discuss and decide phase goes. Why? Well, we're told in the last verse of chapter 16, aren't we? Because in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one consulted the word of God. That's how highly his counsel was esteemed both by David and by Absalom, his son. But shockingly, shockingly, at this point, Absalom seeks a second opinion. And that's what brings us to Hushai's counterplan. Look at verses 5 to 13. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. 
So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley, and not even a pebble of it will be found there. Now remember, Hushai is David's friend. He had gone out to meet David in the wilderness, but David said, look, you'll be a burden with me if you come with me, but go back to Jerusalem and seek to confound the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, David told Hushai to do this because he saw Hushai as God's answer to the prayer he had just prayed. Remember, as David ascended the Mount of Olives, weeping and praying as he goes, he heard that Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, was among the conspirators, and and he prayed, Lord, please defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. In the very next verse, we read that he was met by Hushai the archite, his friend. So David sees Hushai as God's answer to David's prayer, and David sends Hushai back to Jerusalem to try to confound, to try to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. So, in answer to his prayer, David sought to accomplish the very thing he prayed for. In other words, prayer was not an excuse for passivity, but for proactivity on David's part, trusting that God would act. And now Hushai, his friend, is doing his part. (laughs) And he does so brilliantly. God really gives him wisdom as to how to do this. First of all, he undermines Ahithophel's counsel without overstating his point. He didn't say, that's a stupid plan, Ahithophel's an idiot. Because everybody knew how wise and how smart Ahithophel was. Nobody would think that of Ahithophel. He was too highly esteemed. So notice what Hushai says. He disagrees with Ahithophel without disrespecting him. He says, this time... The counsel that Ahithophel gives is not good. In other words, uh, all the other times he's been right. But you know, nobody gets it right 100% of the time. And on this occasion, probably this may be the only occasion he's mistaken. He's just wrong. So he undermines Ahithophel's counsel without overdoing it, so to speak. So it's more believable. Secondly, he appeals to Absalom's pride. Absalom. You know that your father and the men with him are mighty men. The you is unusually emphatic in that verse, saying, Absalom, Ahithophel is smart, but you're smarter. You know your dad better than Ahithophel does. You know that he's a mighty man. And so he's not only feeding Absalom's pride, but what's he also doing? He's stoking Absalom's fear. Absalom knows that his father has a reputation of being a mighty warrior. And that's how... Hushai portrays David as a formidable opponent who has defeated every adversary who has ever been stupid enough to try to fight him. Ever since Goliath came crashing to the ground, no one had ever outwitted or overpowered David and his men in battle. Think about that. Yeah, we know he's weary at the Jordan. We know he's discouraged. We know he's been weeping. But his reputation is that of a mighty warrior. And now Hushai is messing with Absalom's mind. Then he goes right back to feeding his pride because he knows that Absalom's greatest weakness is Hushai's greatest weapon. Absalom isn't even mentioned in Ahithophel's plan, right? Ahithophel's the one that's going to go. Absalom isn't even part of the plan until all the people 
are returned to him as a bride comes back to her husband. Ahithophel is the one doing everything. Ahithophel is the one taking the action. Ahithophel is the leader. Ahithophel is in the limelight until the very end of the plan. Maybe that idea didn't sound so great to Absalom. If he considered the counsel of Ahithophel as if one consulted the very word of God, what would keep Absalom from ever seeking someone else's second opinion unless it was, I don't like not being in the limelight. What do you think about this plan? And he's stupid enough actually to tell who shy what Ahithophel was thinking. It would have been better just to say, what do you think we should do without telling him what Ahithophel said? According to Hushai's plan, and he just continues to feed his pride here, Absalom will personally lead the charge, and he won't do it with 12,000 men. All Israel's going to be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. It'll be like the sand of the seashore. And it takes time to accumulate that kind of an army, right? Giving David time to further distance himself from Absalom. He's buying David time. But we'll have an army like a sand on the seashore. We will smoke David out wherever he is. There will not be any survivors. Remember, Ahithophel said, we'll kill only the king. He says, no, we're not killing just the king. We're killing everybody who stood in opposition against us with him. We will fall on them the way the dew falls on the ground. And if they try to hide out in a city, we will take ropes and we'll pull down the walls of that city until not even a pebble is left. So you can imagine as Hushai is describing this, this incredible, magnificent scene of overwhelming military might and victory with Absalom leading the charge. You can imagine his pulse quickening, his, his eyes widening with anticipation, and his uh, face just flush with excitement as he pictures the scene. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And this is where we see the Lord's control. Remember, getting counsel from Ahithophel was like consulting the very word of God. That's how highly his counsel was valued. That's how highly his counsel was esteemed. But notice that it was the Lord's purpose that prevailed. David's son Solomon, who ended up being the one who succeeded him on the throne later, wrote a slew of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, including this one. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30. So that sounds really familiar. Yeah, because it's our transformative truth for today. The transformative truth for today is Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. This truth is powerfully illustrated in this narrative. Absalom and all the men of Israel, listen, Absalom and all the men of Israel, when they first heard Ahithophel's advice, thought it was good advice. They all agreed with him. Then he says, Hushai, what do you think? And then Absalom and all the men of Israel do an about face and completely change their mind. Why? Because God had ordained it. And that word ordained is a Hebrew word that can also be translated and usually is translated command. God commanded it. God in his sovereignty gave a command or order, not verbally in this instance, 
but God commanded it to be done in the holy counsel of his will. No, 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 no. This is how it's going to play out. Because the Lord had purpose to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel in response to David's prayer and to bring harm upon Absalom, who had rebelled against God's rightful king. God is the one calling the shots. Do not mistake this, or do not miss this. The Lord is in control. It's his purpose that prevails. It is his plan that ultimately matters. We see God's providence at work following this revelation of God's purpose. Look at verse, uh, his purpose in verse 14. And now God sets in motion a series of events that will eventually lead to David's deliverance and Absalom's downfall. So now you know what's going to happen, but you could probably read ahead anyway, right? Um, but God sets in motion a series of events that will ultimately lead to David's deliverance and Absalom's downfall. Look at verses 15 to 23 of 2 Samuel 17. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the forge of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of the man at Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Much could be said about these verses, but let's just take it at face value. You can see the sequence of events as they unfold. The messengers to David are protected. The pursuers are unsuccessful. David and the men who are with them cross the Jordan under the cover of darkness. And Ahithophel hangs himself. Now some say it might have been due to pride because he just couldn't take the fact that his advice wasn't followed. I think it's because he saw the writing on the wall. I think Ahithophel knew when they neglected his counsel, we're going with Hushai, it's like, you know what? It's over. This is going to give David and his crack troops just enough time to recover, to prepare for battle, and once they do, they're going to decimate Absalom's forces, and then I'm going to be hanged for the criminal that I am. So I might as well just go ahead and end it all now. Let's not forget what the Bible said about Ahithophel, that he was like a vicious horse that struck its master, lifting up his heel against God's rightful king. And Jesus used this very verse to describe Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him as the ultimate king, God's choice. And of course, Judas, like Ahithophel, went out and hanged himself. 
The tragic ends of Ahithophel and Judas are a sign of what will happen to all the enemies of God's king and his kingdom. Listen, you cannot attack the kingdom of God without ultimately being overcome by the power of God. God will win. So you better make sure you're on his side. And that's why Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Change your mind about the way this world operates and recognize that God is in control. God in the flesh has come to you to rescue you from your miserable way of life, from the tyranny of your sin, in order to grant you forgiveness, in order to reconcile you to himself. And Jesus says, I came to save sinners. I came to lay down my life for sinners. Notice what Jesus said in John 10. He says, I lay down my life of my own accord. Nobody takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. So even when Jesus was crucified, God was still in control. People were fully responsible for their sins. They were fully responsible for crucifying the King of glory. But never at one moment was God ever at a loss in terms of his wisdom, power, or sovereignty. They, by wicked hands, crucified the king of glory, but God in his sovereignty overruled their sin for a good and holy purpose to save sinners like me and you. And now Jesus has ascended to the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to the Father through faith in him. And God promises that if we will turn from our sin, and we will trust in Christ as our Savior, we will be forgiven, truly forgiven of all our sins. We will be fully reconciled to God, and we will be guaranteed in eternity with Him in heaven. And that's why the gospel is good news. So, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I could... End the sermon on that note, and you would say, wow, this is great. It's 1120. We're out of here a half hour early. Let's go. But I want to take, really, the second half of this sermon to do something a little bit different. I want to encourage those of you who have loved ones outside of Christ, whose hearts are so hard, so resistant, perhaps even their arguments against the Christian faith are so strong you don't see them ever coming to Christ. And you are discouraged in your prayers. You're looking at the situation and you're seeing it as hopeless. And even though you might continue to pray, you feel like giving up because you feel like your prayers aren't making a difference. I want to encourage you today. Perhaps you have a son or daughter who, like Absalom, has rebelled against God's rightful king. Listen. The point of today's text is not that God has determined to bring harm upon your child the way that he brought harm upon Absalom. The point of the text is that no human wisdom, insight, or plan can succeed against the Lord. God is sovereign. And if God has determined to save your child in response to your prayers that work in concert with God's purpose, that is going to happen. And I want to encourage you in that regard. No human wisdom, insight, or plan can succeed against the Lord. God fulfilled his purpose, which was sovereign, 
in accordance with David's prayer, which was sincere in his trust of the Lord. And David offered this prayer when visibly all seemed lost. I want to encourage you in this regard, even as I've been encouraged this week. In the providence of God, I have been rereading what is probably my all-time favorite missionary biography. The book is by Courtney Anderson and is titled, To the Golden Shore, The Life of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first foreign missionary sent from America overseas to share the gospel and plant churches in a foreign land. And he went to the land of Burma. That's why it's called the Golden Shore, which is today the country of Myanmar. Adoniram Judson was born in 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts to his mother Abigail and his father Adoniram Judson Sr., who was a congregational minister. When Adoniram was 13 years old, they moved to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where his father pastored the third church in Plymouth. And here's where I'm going to be reading a lot from bi- bi- the biography, so there's, it's, it's long excerpts, but please follow this story. From his earliest years, Adoniram was unusually high-spirited, enthusiastic in anything he did, active and energetic. He had complete self-confidence. Yet on the whole, he preferred books to play. He was a brilliant student, so brilliant in fact that at age 16, he went to college. He went to college at the Rhode Island College at Providence, which was later named, in fact, during Adoniram's time there, it was renamed Brown University, named after Nicholas Brown, who was a wealthy businessman and alumnus of the school and one of its greatest benefactors. At the time, the college had only 150 students. And if you've ever been part of a small campus, you know, you just get to know pretty much everybody on that campus. And Adoniram became close friends with another person named Jacob Eames, who was, and this is from the biography, amiable, talented, witty, extremely agreeable in person and manners, but was a confirmed deist, meaning that he rejected the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, and all he would believed in was the existence of God, who was impersonal, removed from the affairs of the world. So Adias would believe that, you know, God did create the world. He kind of set things in motion, but now he's a distant deity. He doesn't involve himself in the affairs of humans. He is an impersonal God. Adoniram's parents had no idea that their son had wandered from the Christian faith that he was raised in. As he and his close friend Jacob Eames talked about their dreams, their ambitions, their goals, and both of them were brilliant, well-accepted people in social circles, the whole structure of the belief so indoctrinated in Adoniram by his father collapsed like a house of cards. Or, the biographer writes, was belief sown and nurtured in infancy more like a plant with deep roots penetrating far into the very Uh, foundations of his personality involving forces never to appear in memory or awareness. Now continue to listen. This brings us to the chapter in the book that is titled Revolt. After college, Adoniram returns to Plymouth. He begins teaching and publishes two textbooks by the time he turns 20 years old. Here's what I'm going to read straight from the book. Nevertheless, he was dissatisfied. His work seemed nothing but a way to occupy the time. 
Worse, he was living a lie. Every day he dutifully took part in family worship. Sundays he faithfully attended church. No one, least of all his father and mother, suspected his real beliefs. But his private creed did not deny ethics and morality, nor condone dishonesty. Living as he did, he could not help feeling like a hypocrite every time he knelt at family prayers. Every week he grew more restless. Unhappily, he remembered the ambitions he shared with Jacob Eames only a few years ago. What had happened to them? Were they nothing but dreams? That summer, he finally came to a decision. He would leave home. He would go to New York. He would become acquainted with the people of the theater. He would learn to write for the stage. Caution kept him from telling his parents exactly what he had in mind. On August 9th, his 20th birthday, he merely said that he planned to travel for a while and see something of the world. He thought that he would visit his uncle Ephraim, pastor of the church at Sheffield, some 150 miles westward. Since he would be so far west, he might go on and see Albany, New York. The newly invented steamboat, Claremont, had been in service for a year. Perhaps he might take that to New York City just to see what it was like and broaden himself by looking at some of the sights of the city. His parents reacted precisely as if he had casually announced his decision to take a little trip to the moon. At first, they were incredulous. Then when they realized that he was determined, they displayed a sort of horrified amazement. What was wrong, his mother asked, with a pleasant family circle here in Plymouth? Why, demanded his father, had he suddenly decided to interrupt their promising career? Adoniram had no answer. They could not realize he had come to the point where he must throw off their rule, no matter how benevolent it was, and think and act for himself. He could not explain it. And why should he have to? As he restlessly listened to their remonstrances, their protests against him, unreasoning anger began to rise in him. All at once, Adonai's resentment boiled over. Furiously, he flung out the truth. His father and mother froze with horror as Adonai's words struck their startled ears. The God of the Third Church of Plymouth was not his God, Adonai told them. He could not believe that the Bible was anything but the work of men, even Jesus, He was certainly the son of man, but almost certainly not the son of God, except in the sense that all men are. Mr. Judson was outraged. What had gotten into his son? He felt sure that at Brown, of all places, no harm would be done to his son's soul. The school had actually been founded by Baptists and was governed by Baptists. That's why he sent him there. Swallowing his anger, Mr. Judson set himself to reason with Adoniram. Very shortly, he realized with dismay that every argument he advanced was being met by two better ones. Not for nothing had Adoniram been valedictorian of his class. Exposing the fallacies in his father's syllogisms was mere child's play. Point by point, with crushing finality, he demolished every thesis his father set out to prove. By nightfall, Adoniram was completely master of the field. So far as logic and evidence went, Mr. Judson was beaten. He still knew he was right, but he couldn't prove it. He lapsed into grim, impotent silence. Adoniram might have gone to bed flushed with triumph had his mother not possessed more deadly weapons, tears, prayers, and protests. Weeping, she pursued him from room to room. How could she enjoy heaven knowing that her son was in hell? She used no logic. She simply assumed that through some perverseness of his own, Adoniram had chosen the devil against God, hell against heaven, and wounding her feelings rather than making her happy. When finally she saw that Adoniram withstood her, she turned to prayers. 
wherever she turned, wherever she turned, wherever he turned, he saw his beloved mother bowed in prayer and heard her lifting her voice brokenly, sobbingly, pleading with God to change the heart of her wayward son and to save him from damnation. For Adoniram, this itself was a little hell. He endured it for six days until on the 15th of August, mounted on a horse his father gave him as part of his inheritance, he rode westward toward the steep grade of Pleasant Street in Plymouth, crossed Town Brook, and slowly jogged on toward Boston, Worcester, and Sheffield. He had won his freedom, but he was not entirely happy with it. As he thought of the new life ahead, his spirits did begin to soar, yet he could not quite throw off a certain uneasiness. So eventually, I'm skipping ahead here, he makes it to Albany, boards the steamboat Claremont for New York City, as he said he would, and upon his arrival, he's filled with the anticipation, but he ends up being greatly disappointed. The prospects were poor for a young stranger, but Adoniram persisted, and in a few days, he succeeded in attaching himself to a shabby little band. For a few weeks, he roamed with them, living, as he said later, a reckless, vagabond life finding lodgings where we could and bilking the landlord where we found opportunity. In other words, running up a tally and then departing without paying the bill. For some, the life might have seemed fascinating. For Adoniram, it was the very opposite of his anticipations. Disgusted, heartsick, he left without notice one night and nursing his disappointment, made his way back to his uncle's home in Sheffield. The experience in New York had left Adoniram without a plan. Unless he wanted to go home, he could think of nothing better than procuring his horse from his uncle and continuing to wander. But he was uneasy. What should he strive for now? He felt aimless. He had expected to find a more honest, freer world, swelling with fresh, brilliant, thoughtful people and companionship. But the world he did find was cheap, vulgar, pompous, and pretentious. By contrast, his father's character, with all its obstinate wrongheadedness, stood out in simple grandeur. His father could be mistaken, was mistaken in fact, but he was honest granite clear through. In this bewildered move, Adoniram returned, mood, Adoniram returned to Ephraim Judson's parsonage. His uncle was away and a young minister was taking his place. But it was too late in the day to ride on, so Adoniram decided to spend the night at the parsonage. The two young men, close enough to the same age to talk as equals, spent several hours in conversation. There was a warmth, a solemn but gentle earnestness in this man's speech, which kindled a responsive warmth in Adoniram's heart. As he rode away in the morning, he was deeply impressed. Perhaps this young minister would never find the fame that Adoniram was looking for, but neither would he experience the pain of Adoniram's conflict. This man was at peace within himself. There were, those were Adoniram's thoughts as he rode on, still trending away from Plymouth. At night, as night drew on, he found himself passing through a small village. Finding the local inn, he stabled his horse and asked the innkeeper for a room. The house was nearly full, and the landlord said apologetically. He did have one room next to a young man, but that man was critically ill, perhaps even dying. He might be disturbed by all the noise and... No, 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 said Adoniram, still wrapped in his own thoughts. He would not let a few noises next door deny him a night's rest. After giving him something to eat, the landlord showed Adoniram to his room and left him. 
Without further ado, Adoniram got into bed and waited for sleep to come. But though the night was still, he could not sleep. In the next room, beyond the partition, he could hear sounds, not very loud, footsteps coming and going, boards creaking, low voices, a groan or gasp. These did not disturb him unduly, not even the realization that a man might be dying. Death was commonplace in Adoniram's New England. It could come to anyone at any age. What disturbed him was the thought that the man in the next room might not be prepared for death. Was he himself? A confusing coil of speculation unwound itself as he lay half dreaming, half waking, while the autumn chills stole down from the mountains and crept through every crack and cranny of the house. He wondered how he himself would face death. His father would welcome it as a door opening to immortal glory. So much his creed had done for him. But to Adoniram, the son, the free thinker, the deist, the infidel, lying huddled under the covers, death was an exit, not an entrance. It was a door to an empty pit, to darkness darker than night, at best to extinction, at worst to... to what? On this matter, his philosophy was silent. It had no answer, but who knows? He had always been neat and well-groomed. His mother had taught him to be fastidious. He cared for his own person well, but he must die. And the grave was a cold, dark place. His flesh began to crawl. Was the wet, earthy mold in the motionless body, the slow dissolution of muscle and tendon, the slower crumbling of bone, the immense weight of soil, was this all? Was this it through endless centuries? What of that part of Adoniram Judson he thought of as I, as, as me? Did it go out like a flame of a candle? Or did it too stay in the ground with the flesh? There was terror in these fantastically unwinding ideas. But as they presented themselves, another part of him jeered. Midnight fancies, that part said scornfully. What a skin-deep thing, this free-thinking philosophy of Adoniram Judson, valedictorian, scholar, teacher, ambitious man, must be. What would the classmates at Brown say to these terrors of the night who thought of them as bold in thought? Above all, what would Eames say? Eames, the clear-headed, skeptical, witty, the talented. He imagined Eames' laughter and felt shame. When Adoniram woke, the sun rays streaming in the window his apprehensions vanished with the darkness. He could hardly believe that he had given in to such weakness, to such stupid thoughts. He dressed quickly and ran downstairs looking for the innkeeper. It was past time to have breakfast, pay his bill, saddle his horse, and be on his way. He found his host, asked for the bill, and perhaps noticing the man's somber face, asked casually whether the young man in the next room was better. He's dead, was the answer. Dead? Adoniram was taken back. There was such a heavy finality to the word. For an instant, some of that fear from the night before was felt once again inside of him. Adoniram stammered out the few conventional phrases common to humanity when death takes hold of someone nearby and asked the inevitable question, Oh, do you know who he was? Oh, yes, young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. How Adoniram got through the next few hours, he was never able to remember. All he recalled afterwards was that he did not try to leave the inn until some hours had passed. 
Later, however, he found himself on the road, continuing his journey without being sure how he came to be there. He was aware that one word was tolling in his mind like a bell, the word lost. Lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost, utterly, irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, to the world, to the future. Lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. The coincidence of his dying on the other side of a partition from Adoniram in a remote country was simply a meaningless incident in a plan too huge and impersonal to take account of individuals. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. Then Jacob Eames was already lost in a far more desperate sense. For already this moment, Eames knew his error too late for repentance. Knowing his mistake, regretting it with a bitterness which no living human being could ever possibly imagine, he was experiencing already the unimaginable torments of the flames of hell. Any chance of remedy, of going back, of correcting, lost, eternally lost. Thus the pattern in Adoniram's shocked mind. It was the night thoughts back again, but in far more dreadful form. For that hell to open up in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed, this could not, it simply could not be pure coincidence. Adoniram knew his father's God very well. He was omniscient. He knew everything. He was omnipotent. He had all power. He could foresee where Adoniram would be that night. He could foresee his leaving New York when and why he did. He could foresee that Jacob Eames would be where he was, fall sick, die, be damned. No, it's more than that. Being all-powerful, he must have done this with a purpose, for he could have arranged matters otherwise. This God of the Bible Adoniram had been taught was an angry God, a vindictive God. But he was a just God, and he could be a loving God. And he gave ample warning. If this was the real God, it was no mere coincidence that Adoniram had fallen in among rogues and had left disgusted. It was no coincidence that the pious young man had been in his uncle Ephraim's house to convene, uh, to converse with that young man who just happened to be there that very night when his uncle was absent. It was no coincidence that Adoniram had spent this particular night at this particular inn thinking these particular thoughts. He had been warned, warned, amply warned. Was this the real God? If so, he had a purpose for Adoniram, which Adoniram must learn to find. In his very bones, all at once, logic or no logic, Adoniram was imbued with the feeling that the God of the Bible was the real God. And Adoniram was filled with despair and dread. For deist logic and evidence said, no. Suddenly he reined in his horse. Without realizing it, he had been continuing the course that he had planned originally. He straightened in the saddle for a moment of decision. Yes, he must find out about this once and for all. He turned the horse in the road, spurred it to a faster pace, and headed back in the direction from which he had come. Home. Home. Toward Plymouth. Adam arrived back in September, 
in mortal fear for his own soul. On his return, his parents at last became aware of the gravity of their son's inner crisis and continued to weep and pray for him. He entered Andover Theological Seminary on the 12th of October. He made no profession of religious belief and was enrolled as a special student, not as a candidate for ministry because of his condition. So far as Adoniram was concerned, the two-man faculty served as well as a score. Languages had always interested him. Besides Greek and Latin, he had already known some Hebrew. Now under Dr. Pearson, he began to read sacred literature in the original. At the same time, he began to thrash out his theological doubts with Professor Woods, who turned out to be fully his match as a person of logic. November came. The ground was wet with fall rain, the weather raw, only a few lonely leaves lingered on the bare boughs. But with the trees bare, he could see farther. And as he walked thoughtfully through the grove, he found that he could see farther into his problems too. He began to suspect that he had not seen the forest for the trees, nor the trees for the leaves. That month, his doubts began to leave little by little. He underwent no sudden conversion, felt no blinding flash of insight, but he was able to note, and this is in his own words, that he began to entertain a hope of having received the regenerating influences of the Holy Spirit. On the second day of December, a day he never forgot, he made a solemn dedication of himself to God. With the issue settled and himself finally at peace, he devoted himself with a single mind to his studies. The next summer, he joined the church at Plymouth to the unrelieved joy of his father, his mother, and his sister Abby. And from that time forward, he was literally a new man. Amen? No human wisdom, insight, or plan can succeed against the Lord. God is sovereign, and your prayers matter. God answered David's prayer by defeating the counsel of Ahithophel, whose word was as if someone consulted the word of God. God answered prayer, the prayers of Adoniram's mother and his father, how by orchestrating circumstances that utterly defied the power of logic, the sense of mathematics, and ended up creating faith in Adoniram's heart. And that same God still hears and answers the prayers of his people today. So whatever your situation is, whatever loved one you're broken for, keep praying and don't lose heart. And again, I say that if anyone here is lost, far from Christ, come home. Repent of your sins, believe the gospel, and you too, by God's grace, will become a brand new person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how the truth of it is seen not only in our text, but through some of the greatest accounts of human history. And we thank you for your grace in the life of Adoniram Judson. May it encourage us in our endeavors, not only missiologically in terms of seeing the world one to Christ, but even as close to the walls of our own home as we pray for and persevere in prayer for our loved ones. Help us to believe that our prayers do matter and your purposes will prevail. In Christ's name, amen.